Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast Insight segment, where we investigate major topics that are shaping biotechnology today. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm your host, Joe Rielli. Our guest today is Spiro Rombotis. Spiro is the CEO of Cyclosol Pharmaceuticals, a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company developing innovative medicines based on cell cycle, transcriptional regulation, and mitosis biology with a focus on oncology and hematology indications. Their lead drug candidate, FADRA, is a dual CDK2-9 inhibitor currently undergoing investigation of a dose escalation in a phase 1-2 trial. Prior to joining Cyclocell, Spiro served in a number of management positions at public and private biotechs, including Centicor, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and the Liposome Company. He earned his MBA at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Business. Spiro, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So often we have individuals who, you know, maybe have management positions in biotech and pharma. Some have MBAs and some have PhDs. The the track to understand where those get interested in science with a PhD is a little bit easier to understand. What what was your uh, introduction to science and how did you get involved in management within biotech and pharmaceutical industries in particular? Well, I I was started very early uh, in my training years at Northwestern in Chicago. I trained in public health, I have a a master's degree in hospital management. And I also had some practical experience in hospice, which back then in the uh, mid 80s was specializing in uh, pediatric care. So we had uh, terminally ill pediatric patients with cancers that could not be addressed. That was a formative and very difficult experience, which forced me to reconsider what one can do to put their own pebble on the beach and contribute in this very difficult disease environment. So I decided to cross over to the manufacturer side and work in research, particularly clinical research in oncology, which is an area I've been active for 37 years, where one can have direct contact with the patients, the practitioners, the care environment and all the ecosystem that supports cancer care today. And it's remarkable in this 37-year journey how much progress has been made and how fulfilling that decision has turned out to be. Yeah, to that point, what was the landscape of biotech like when you were first introduced to the industry? And and I'm sure just the the mass of biotech companies that exist today uh, is the key difference. But um, can you tell me about what kinds of science were being done then and and how you've seen that industry evolve over time? Yes, uh, when I first joined the industry, uh, it was in its uh, nation stages, I guess I'm dating myself. In the 80s, there was only a handful of biotech companies around, primarily or exclusively in the United States, very few in Europe, uh, nowhere else were there biotech companies. Uh, I think uh, it was easy to to count in the fingers of one hand the clinical programs in development in those days. I was joined as one of the first employees of Senecor in Pennsylvania. This is a company that was just out of the UPenn incubator into a private building. We had uh, very few uh, prospects and even less capital. <laughs> I was the ninth employee. The company was a pioneer in the field of monoclonal antibodies, which is now a multi-hundred billion dollar industry and a very critical modality for treating cancer and literally dozens of other disease states. But we were the first to put drugs 
in the bloodstream of patients to test antibody response, recruiting the immune system, and so forth, and faced all the difficulties of any first mover in that new modality. Now, I vividly remember, particularly when I was uh, sent to Europe to start uh, Senoco Europe, I would visit hospitals and I would routinely get thrown out because of physicians' concern about uh, anti-murine response. These were hammer response, the human antibody response to um, a murine antigen being injected. And of course, our data show that this could be safely done, but the physicians were very skeptical and routinely we asked me to leave, <laughs> not interested in starting the trials. So I had to persist and so did my colleagues and we eventually prevailed and brought two drugs to market that eventually catalyzed the Johnson & Johnson acquisition in the late 80s. But essentially, the lesson from that formative experience is that persistent persistence pays, but it's very important to understand that patients do not necessarily have a preference whether your drug is given intravenously or orally, so long as it works. Of course, we've been through a pandemic and a lot of things have changed since then. But back in the early 80s in the nation stage of the industry, one could not foresee the wave that has become now biologics, as well as other modalities, including oral small molecules that are serving cancer patients. So it's really important not to try to be too um, prophetic about the the turns the technology takes, but rather to pursue one's vision and one's insight. And then if that inspiration is sufficient to keep one going for years and years, then the rewards are very rich at the end of the journey. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And it's great to hear your philosophy on um, early stage drug development and how it can lead to approved drugs. Now we can sort of talk about the cell cycle in cancer. Cyclocell, as I mentioned, uh, focuses on Drugs to treat cancers uh, that that have dysregulation in mitosis biology, uh, transcriptional regulation, and, and cell cycle. Um, we all know p53 obviously as a uh, uh, cancer-related gene um, that causes dysregulation in, in cell cycle arrest. Uh, can you tell us about some of the other notable targets uh, related to cell cycles uh, in cancers, and and maybe give us a, a look inside of how you decided on the specific cell cycle targets that you're interested in? That's a great question, and it uh, capsulizes the uh, many decades of research in this field uh, sequential to the discovery of P53. And your choice of uh, that gene in particular, that oncogene, is uh, very salient to Cyclocell. As the founder of the company, Professor David Lane, who uh, was my partner when we started the company together. He was the founder. I was the first CEO. And we literally sat in his living room in Scotland. He was a professor in the University of Dundee overlooking the St. Andrews Bay and the golf course and beautiful scenery. And we decided what we're going to do with ourselves and with the company. Uh, David's views were very clear. and They empirically emerged from uh, laboratory experiments that when cells become resistant after serial exposure to anti-cancer agents, they do so because they overexpress certain proteins. These proteins are anti-apoptotic. In other words, they block the body's natural way of weeding out dangerous cells. This process is repeated in many disease states, and they also operate in a normal functional way in healthy human beings. In cancer, though, the cell cycle checkpoint control process, the gateway that checks cells for DNA damage, is dysfunctional. And some of the circuits that control that, the master switch of which is P53, are either mutated or absent. So our goal is to suppress the proteins that block apoptosis as a consequence of cancer cells gaining an advantage, and then re-enable the body's natural way of destroying cancer cells. So 
critical difference about the whole philosophy of the approach that we're following in cyclists is that we're not trying to kill cells as cytotoxics do. We're not trying to necessarily recruit the immune system as immuno-oncology drugs do. What we're trying to do is re-enable apoptosis, the natural suicide program that the body ensures cells undergo when they reach the end of their useful life or are, used, are, are deemed to be dangerous or useless. So downstream of P53, there are several circuits that control these processes. One of the most interesting ones is the family of enzymes called CDKs, cyclin-dependent kinases. And very interestingly for Cyclocell, three or four years after the company got started, the Nobel Prize in 2001 was awarded for the discovery of CDKs and their regulatory subunits, uh, proteins called cyclins, which actually are phosphorylated by the enzyme in order for the cell cycle progression to occur. And of course, in cancer, that phenomenon can be disrupted so we can induce the cancer cell to commit suicide by interfering exactly at the point where the CDK enzyme phosphorylates the protein substrate. So in a short version of this rather lengthy biology explanation, we're trying to restore, if you want, the protein um, to its normal functional state. We want to suppress the overexpression or amplification of the protein. And in doing so, the body then takes over and the cancer cell is instructed to commit suicide. Now, this becomes very interesting because of society's huge investments in treating patients with current state anti-cancer drugs. These patients may stay on for hopefully years, some cases months, and very few cases uh, weeks before progression or relapse occurs. So the goal here is to, to lengthen as much as possible the time without relapse. Uh, fortunately, most of the drugs we have in front of us today eventually fail. When they fail, if the resistance is genetically acquired, like the phenomena I described with alloptosis is blocked for these uh, cancer cells, then we come on board. And by suppressing the proteins, we re-engage the apoptotic machinery. The two targets of most interest in this approach to cancer care are CDK9 and CDK2. CDK9 is the most well-studied because it is known to regulate circuitry such as MCL1, a protein known to be upregulated or overexpressed in many types of cancer from both solid and the liquid cancer family, and also MYC a known oncogene, which is not druggable, but is certainly a key component in proliferation of many aggressive cancers. Now, in recent years, a lot more interest has been given to the other choice that uh, Cyclocell made, which is CDK2. Although CDK9 had the bulk of research, including clinical research over the years, CDK2 has now become much more interesting to industry scientists and become more vogue because we have been... Um, detecting in large clinical trials that many patients who progress on current standard of care have elevation of cyclin E, which is the relevant cyclin that is phosphorylated by CDK2. So since cyclin E is not easy to drug, although one can try to degrade it, and that may be a future plan, but for the time being, we can inhibit CDK2 and therefore lower cyclin E levels, which are a mark of resistance for many drugs, particularly in breast cancer, both the HER2 type of breast cancer and the hormone receptor positive type of breast cancer are known to be associated with cyclin E overexpression in patients who fail current standard of care therapy. So the overall plan was to identify molecules, ideally small molecules, ideally given by the oral route, but not necessarily, that could be inhibiting CDK2 and CDK9, probably in that sequence for a number of other empirical reasons, and be given for a long time. The idea was to provide them in nearly chronic care to take patients on for several months, if not years, and improve progression-free survival. 
PFS. Why is PFS important? Because it's the best surrogate we have for overall survival. That may take years to show and can be very challenging in some tumor types where early stage treatment can be quite successful. And of course, there are even worse for tumors that are indolent, like prostate cancer, where it takes for a long time for survival to be observed. And trials can be very expensive and very long. So essentially, the cyclosal strategy was to hit both CDK2 and CDK9. Other companies in our space have chosen to go after only CDK9, and a more recent group have decided to go only after CDK2. There are many reasons why this may not be the optimal strategy, but I'm pleased to tell you that, at least as of this writing, uh, we are the only company to have shown single-agent activity, including partial response and complete response, in patients with both solid tumor and liquid tumor. And we have an excellent tolerability profile for this drug, suggesting that David Lane may have had an important point in his early experiments where CDK9 inhibition only was not as effective and turned out to be toxic if one continued exposure and CDK2 was found to be a dispensable target by other authors, was not seen as a valid target on its own, only perhaps in combination. So CDK2 and 9 is a unique feature of the cyclosal molecule FADRA that you mentioned, and one that we're very excited to pursue in the clinic for the last year and a half or so as an oral drug to be given chronically. Yeah, the opportunity is very clear. I, I want to touch on the selectivity aspect. So identifying a an inhibitor that can block both CDK2 and CDK9, was that a difficult process? Um, it, it seems fairly novel given that there are a lot of CDKs, as you had mentioned, so identifying selectivity for two out of um, however many CDKs there are uh, se- seems like a big effort. Excellent question. Actually, there are 12 CDK cyclin complexes known to science back then. There are over 20 now, and I'm sure that number will grow. So you're absolutely correct. And to make things more challenging in the context of your question, there is high sequence homology among these uh, biological circuits. So it's very hard to separate activity. But early knowledge particularly knowledge of things you don't want to hit to come to screen for is important. For example, we know that CDK1 is deleterious to normal cells. It's toxic. It does not add much to anti-cancer activity unless you can find specific patients in the phenomenon we call synthetic lethality, which has not been demonstrated yet for CDK1. So I think most companies that have been around the track in this class of compounds have realized that we have to counter screen for one and select for either two and nine or two or nine. And we obviously chose to do the former because we found that two is an escape mechanism for nine. So in selecting uh, the 400 series of molecules out of which FADRA emerges the clinical lead, we had a design formula that I just outlined, but we also had other criteria. For example, solubility and permeability were very important. Can we make the drug both intravenously administrable, but also administer it by mouth? Also, we're looking at other aspects of toxicity, particularly when it comes to target organs, where previous companies with more promiscuous target profiles, drugs that hit every CDK known to science for the reasons we covered, had encountered toxicity and see if we can um, select molecules against that in preclinical models. And finally, we're looking for good physical chemical properties that make this a good pharmaceutical, i.e. the capsule size or potentially a tablet can be taken for many days on end, as opposed to an infusion, which requires a visit to a care center. That proven to be a very salient decision, particularly in light of the pandemic and immediate post-pandemic care we're going now, where cancer patients don't want to go into the care setting because they are uniquely vulnerable to viral infections like COVID. So for all these reasons, uh, it's a technically scientific undertaking, 
Uh, also, it is against the orthodoxy. We're all trained to look for monoselectivity because purity of thinking leads to better experimental outcomes. And all this is true. But biology is recalcitrant and oftentimes disappoints us, uh, much like um, many things in human nature. We tend to be a little bit on the arrogant side that we understand everything about nature. And the reality is that this redundancy is becoming the undoing of a monoselective molecule. And I think many cancer uh, biologists would tell you that there is a finite number of escapes that a cancer cell can devise to escape cancer therapy. It's not infinite. So if we continue to suppress multiple circuits, the chance of inducing apoptosis is higher than if we only uh, suppress one and then the cell escapes. So CDK2 and CDK9 both cooperatively degrade MCL1, and that's one of the reasons that we chose to go after 2N9 and, of course, empirically then selected the molecules that fit the target product profile. And the molecule that you're pushing through clinical development, FADRA, I'll allow you to say the, the full name yourself. Um, what What is it indicated for and, and um, why did you choose those specific indications to start? Uh, well, it's not indicated yet because it's not approved. Okay. But uh, what indications are we studying in the clinic? And here we are raising a very important topic that may be of interest to your audience, which is the nexus of biochemistry and genetics with classical cancer pharmacology. For the last 2,000 years since Hippocrates, we're looking at cancer anatomically. We're looking at tissue of origin. Is the tumor, as you point out, indication based on breast, ovarian, uh, pancreatic, and so on? That may be a completely anachronistic way of looking at cancer. Today, we have genetic profiles. We have patients who are tumor agnostic, and the FDA has approved drugs that do not require a companion diagnostic to identify genetic profile. And the tissue of origin is largely relevant, so long as they overexpress a particular target that we think our drug may suppress. And some of that is going on here. The difference between, let's say, a pure mutational profile of a cancer cell that we can chase with a drug against that mutation is that we're not dealing with mutations. We're dealing with proteins that are overexpressed. And this phenomenon is universal. There is, in fact, uh, one drug approved for this class of compounds. It's called venetoclax or venclexta. It was designed and developed by AbbVie. It's approved only for leukemia, even though the sponsor tried to bring it into solid tumors but couldn't get there because of toxicity. But it's important to note that venetoclax does not require a companion diagnostic, which certain classes of anti-cancer drugs do. And that's because its target, a protein which is the sister to MCL1 called BCL2, is widely observed across liquid and solid tumors. So to summarize, I think that this nexus of biology, uh, genetics, and perhaps uh, traditional chemistry is to understand that indications are sometimes only a departure point. They're not the end game. So we may pick a patient with breast cancer, but before we decide which subtype may be suitable, we need to understand the biology. For example, there was a large Pfizer study with a molecule called Ibrance or palbocyclib, which is the largest cancer brand that Pfizer has, one of the world's largest companies. And they produced an important clinical outcome in a study called Paloma 3, reported at ASCO uh, about three years ago, in which they showed that patients who progress on combination therapy of Ibrance, the Pfizer drug, with hormonal therapy, drugs like letrozole, examestane, or fulvestrant, may live up to three years, but then a large proportion of them will relapse. And when they relapse, the primary correlate to relapse is cyclin amplification. 
that data actually caused a mayhem situation in the industry because many companies had ditched their CDK2 programs because earlier studies had shown it was dispensable. But now it proved to be a major escape mechanism for the largest subgroup of breast cancer. More than three quarters of a million patients every year in the U.S. is the prevalence for hormone receptor positive breast cancer. So this is one of the reasons why Pfizer and others started uh, again to re-explore this area with clinical molecules, but cyclocell was already there. And we found that several patients actually may overexpress not only MC1, but also MYC and as well as cyclin E. So the choice of two and nine has now been vindicated by clinical data showing that these are overlapping experiences. They're not isolated events. We suppress one protein, we succeed. It's much more complex than that. So that's the reason why we keep an open mind. We're not saying we're developing a drug for breast cancer. We're saying we're developing in breast cancer patients, but we'll have to work a bit longer to identify which subtype of breast cancer, and even more so, perhaps identify the stage of disease. We can pick patients at second or third line, and after they have failed frontline combinations with maybe three drugs, and treat them with a doublet or even single agent, which may be more ambitious. And that brings me to the choice of certain indications that fit this criteria. As a small company, we want to find indications that may lead us to early approval, to the FDA's accelerated approval pathway. This means that we have to have fulfilled the FDA's strict criteria for such approvals, which may mean a high level of response, which is durable for several months, and in a setting of higher medical need. What we mean by that is that we may have a patient who fails breast cancer or multiple myeloma. But by the time they reach that stage, they may have had four or five lines of therapy. There's actually one drug approved for pentarefractory myeloma, would you believe it? So myeloma is a very poor indication for the strategy outline because you have to wait for five different lines of therapy to fail before you can test a new drug. But there are settings in which we have chosen um, to study fadrocyclib or FADRA for short, where this is not the case. For example, in some types of lymphoma, particularly the T-cell lymphoma variety, where FADRA has shown single-agent partial response, the medical need is severe. There is uh, one or two options in the front line. These options are available to patients today, but they tend to be IV drugs in a disease setting where the patient doesn't have a lot of veins available for infusing an IV drug. So an oral drug is a rarity and highly desirable for patients. They're more likely to comply and accept clinical trial, let alone receiving the drug in the clinical practice setting. And for this reason, we think that T-cell lymphoma in the refractory setting could be the ideal environment to see if we can get an early approval. This doesn't mean that the drug doesn't have promise elsewhere, like in breast cancer, but these studies may take longer, require more capital and longer readout times. And for this reason, as we and our medical team designed the clinical trial concept that we're now executing, about to start the phase two part of that concept, we're keen to test seven different types of cancer in seven discrete cohorts, ranging from breast to lymphoma, to colorectal cancer, to hepatocellular, to biliary, and so forth, but also have an eighth cohort, which we call a basket. A basket is a cohort where, unlike everything else, where we are not requiring that the patient has a favorable protein overexpression level before they can be entered, here we're doing exactly that. We're saying to the physicians, if you have a patient with so many copies of cyclin E, you can put them into this part of the study, even if their tumor of origin did not 
meet any of the criteria in the other seven. So it could be lung cancer or sarcoma that is not in the other, and they, or pancreatic, and they can still be entered into this study. This approach of combining phase one and phase two leads to a registration-directed proof-of-concept outcome. If we see X responses for one number of patients per cohort, each of them is a discrete outcome, we have a chance to engage the regulator in a potentially constructive dialogue for registration pathway. So it's a, what some people call a no regrets design. It's a very efficient allocation of capital. Within two years, you have a very good idea using futility statistical tools whether your drug has a chance to move forward or not. Yeah, that's a really creative clinical trial design. And, and I like that we're talking about it in the context of um, the genetic basis of cancer, not the uh, tissue of origin. Um, I just want to briefly discuss uh, the diversity of programs that you have at CycleCell, uh, specifically the PLK1 inhibitor 140 that you termed. And PLK1 is an oncogene. Can you describe briefly what PLK1 uh, is doing in the context of cancer and, and your strategy for inhibiting it? Sure, I'm happy to do that. This is a, a very interesting situation that has emerged in a similar environment to David Lane's discoveries. David had a colleague, also called David, David Glover, who was one of the world's top geneticists, who discovered a large number of mitotic kinases. He finished his working career as chairman of genetics at the University of Cambridge in England, but now at past 80, he's a professor emeritus at Caltech in California. So David Glover was very interested in, among other things, polar-like kinases and aurora kinases and other circuits he discovered in Drosophila fruit flies in his genetics laboratory. And he and his collaborators have made seminal publications in this field of mitosis. Mitosis, of course, for those who not be familiar, I'm sure many are, is the last stage of the cell cycle where the cell prepares to divide M phase from mitosis. And during that actual separation of the nucleic and cytosolic material of the cell, we have this elongated structure called the cytoskeleton or spindle, which starts to elongate, and then eventually the cell separates into new cells, daughter cells, with their own nuclei and own cytosols. So the way we want to interfere is exactly in that stage because PLK is a master regulator of mitosis. It controls every subphase from, from metaphase all the way to telophase, which means that it is a wonderfully preserved through evolution genetic circuit to control how cells undergo apoptosis or continue to divide. Of course, in cancer, this process is broken, and a discovery was made by David Lawler's group early on that cyclic cell in licensed, that if we expose cells to PLK loss, the cancer cells are much more vulnerable and undergo apoptosis, whereas normal cells are more resilient and do not undergo apoptosis, but when the drug effect wears off, they go back into cycle and start dividing again. Well, that's a wonderful formula with a built-in selectivity for cancer can be exploited pharmacologically. And that was the genesis of a program that we initiated, guided by David Glover's ideas, who was also our chief scientist part-time for a decade during that period. And we were trying to do three things at once. First of all, we knew that it was very important to have a short half-life. The reason for this was that there was a drug from Berger Ingelheim that was in the clinic before us, several years before us, which had promising activity, particularly in acute myeloid leukemia produced such a stunning early benefit in a randomized study that it got breakthrough therapy designation from the FDA. But it failed the phase three. And the Achilles heel of the program were two things, were IV administration 
could not be given orally, wasn't soluble, and two, a very long half-life of almost five days, which means that when the effect of the drug uh, wears off, we have a lot more dead cells that are normal cells than cancer cells. We have, have a lot of excess toxicity, which tends to obscure the signal and produce a lot of noise in a phase three trial and may be accountable for a negative outcome. So we start to accommodate that by having a short half-life, oral availability, and we want to be PLK-centric. There are five PLK paralogs known to science. One, two, and three are highly sequenced homologous. Four and five are not. So we wanted to hit PLK1 by preference at the highest potency level. Our drug is about three nanomolar, IC50 potent against PLK1, and a little bit less potent, but in the relevant therapeutic range for PLK2 and PLK3. And the reason for this is very similar to why we did 2 and 9 for the CDK, that is redundancy, the ability to shut down escape mechanisms and prevent the cell from escaping going back into cycle. So the end game here is also apoptotic induction. We would like to reactivate the apoptotic machinery at the later stage of the cell cycle. Is there different cells? We didn't catch them with the CDK approach early. And therefore, we need to be thoughtful as to what we might want to use this drug in, what tumor type, and also what to combine with. Yeah, that's great. And it seems like a program that fits in well with the portfolio of Cyclocell. And you, you built up an identity there in, in focusing on specifically cell cycle and mitosis dysregulation. And we did have a drug in the clinic that hits Aurora kinase, but we decided to discontinue that because that is turned out to be not a validated target. Many other companies came to the same conclusion. So no Aurora kinase inhibitors reached the clinic. Uh, and successfully reached the market. Um, you have a few that made it new the clinic like ours, but the results were disappointing. Yeah. So uh, this is a very important point to share with your audience that we oftentimes in this industry learn by failure. Failure isn't bad. Failure is wonderful because we learn. And we learned that Aurora is a subordinate circuit to PLK. They're both part of the mitotic machinery, but PLK plays the master role. Aurora plays a sequential role. So if you want to intervene, it's better to intervene upstream you have much more chance to be successful and probably you will address more types of cancer for patients than if you did only one that is subsequent to that. Yeah. And can you give us a, an idea of what the clinical outlook for the next year is and, and what we should be looking out for from Cyclocell? Well, we have two trials uh, in process for fadrocyclib and one for 140. The fadrocyclib uh, leading study is the one that we talked about earlier in solid tumor patients and lymphoma. This study enrolled the phase one dose escalation part. We're very close to completing that and declaring recommended phase two dose or RP2D. Once that happens, as part of the same protocol, there's no six month delay. You don't need to go back to the FDA or the RBs. We can immediately start the phase two part in the seven cohorts plus the eighth one, which is the basket. And then we hope within 12 to 18 months from the first patient in, we'll start to have results coming in with the requisite uh, maturity, which means the follow-up time in weeks and months for the patients after they complete their course of therapy to be able to measure, if not PFS, certain response with durability, which is the second best measure of outcomes. On the other hand, with uh, the leukemia program of fadrocyclib, we are testing it both as a single agent and in combinations from the get-go. And the reason for this is that in many leukemias, the front line is triplet and sometimes doublet. So it's very hard to convince a patient to go on single agent unless their leukemia has molecular features that are relevant to the drug's mechanism. So that's going to go slower for all these reasons. And of course, the leukemia landscape 
in refractory disease is extremely challenging. And no drugs have reached the market in the United States. We only have one or two choices in chemotherapy, appropriate patients or people who are unsuitable for chemotherapy. And these choices are actually relatively short-lived. So a huge medical challenge there. For 140, we're following a similar path to FADRA and solid tumors, but different indications. In the second part of the study, this is the proof of concept part, we have different tumor types like bladder cancer, non-small cell lung, and small cell lung. We've seen tremendous preclinical sensitivity for that drug, 140. And we also have only one subtype of breast cancer, and again, colorectal cancer. Now, the reason why colorectal is important is because of a gene mutation called KRAS. You must have heard about that. It's one of the last undrugged frontiers in biopharmaceuticals, in oncology, that and NIC probably. Uh, there is one drug approved by the FDA in the last 12 months for KRAS. Uh, it's called Lumacras from Amgen, but it addresses only one mutation called KRAS G12C out of at least six that we know of. And G12C mutant patients cover only about 10% of the population of KRAS mutated patients in either non-small cell lung where the approval is, or possibly in colorectal cancer where the data has been somewhat less con- convincing. Now, if you look at other mutations like uh, G12V and G14D and G13G, they're probably 60 to 70% of the patients are accounted for by the collective space accounted for for these mutations. So there is um, an intense race in companies in the industry to address those areas. It turns out that in preclinical studies, we've seen something that others have seen, that KRAS mutated cells, particularly in colon cancer, are very sensitive to 140 activity. And that's remarkable because we thought that this is probably unlikely to be addressed in the clinic with a single drug. We have to go with the combination, probably chemotherapy, standard of care. So we've been kind of shocked in a pleasant way to see in our very first dose of the 140 phase 1-2 trial that began a few months ago, to see a patient with non-small cell lung cancer, very severe form of disease, with KRAS G12V mutation, who is now on study with 140 for eight cycles, each cycle being 28 days, seven and a half months. That is unheard of. Yeah. Survival with KRAS mutation seems to be very short. The disease is very aggressive. And this is a single-agent approach at the lowest dose tested. That's not what the playbook would suggest could be plausible. Now, there is an explanation for this, which is in what are called essential biology of cancer, that sometimes when we give drugs in increasing doses, we reach the point that we exceed the therapeutic window and just add toxicity. We don't get more efficacy. Yeah. And apoptosis induction is a classical story of this part of biology, that you reach a point where you cannot mark more cells for degradation of apoptosis. All you do is you destroy or destabilize normal cells, and therefore narrow therapeutic window. Whether one can find the golden standard, you want the, the, the mean at which point we maximize in a bell-shaped curve the benefit and are on the ascending slope part of the curve in our dosing that we designed for recommendation for phase two, we can win. But to see that the very left part of this curve, as we're seeing now, that is very, very unusual. And all I'm saying, without trying to get uh, uh, too prophetic about this drug, this is extremely interesting. This is five milligrams. This is a very potent compound, but it may underline the fact that low-dose continuous treatment with 140 could be more successful strategy for certain tumor types. The higher the mutation burden, the more sensitive the tumor type may be. 
Whereas for other different tumor types, perhaps don't have as much of a tumor mutation burden, perhaps a higher dose may be better or a combination. So this requires a lot of learning in phase one, two. This is what the program is designed to do, but uh, we've been very happy to see that lung cancer patient, there was an ovarian cancer patient who does not have a known mutation at this point, but she went for five cycles without issues on the first dose level. So if you do the first three and two of the three have clinical benefit, it's time to get pretty excited about what this drug may go. Yeah. But for the time being, it's still about a year behind FADRA in development. Yeah, seems to be some really interesting mechanistic insights that you could learn um, both in the clinic and, and in the lab, potentially. Well, this is what's so exciting about drug development. It's a bit like detective work. You're trying to understand how your molecule can help. But although you have, all of us have biases about what the drug does, what the molecule, it's clinical observation, empirical data that drives the day. And in a trial design that enables one to ask uh, a few simple questions uh, without trying to overcomplicate the design, you're probably going to get clear answers. In this case, the important question is, what is the right dosing schedule? Now, the FDA has recently started a project called Optimus, where they're giving sponsors some very specific guidance about how do they go about uh, developing a drug, because the predicament of finding, finding a drug in phase three, where the wrong dose is used, is one we've seen all times, two times too many in our industry. So it's just unacceptable. We have to become better at optimizing doses. Essentially, what the FDA wants to know is not just the classical, show me the dose at which the drug is toxic, therefore that dose minus one level is what you may want to go forward in future development, but rather show me the dose at which the drug is minimally effective, we'll call minimally effective dose, MED, because the range between MED and the maximally tolerated dose, MTD, is the therapeutic window. So the FDA wants to know both bookends. It's not enough to say, oh, I found a dose, the drug works, I'm gonna go forward, and then halfway through the phase three, you have this sinking feeling that maybe you got it wrong. You either gave it a too high a level, like that previous PLK drug I mentioned that we had a very long half-life, or you gave it too low. You didn't see enough activity, so the study is not going to be successful. So it's really important to spend time and treasure in phase one and in the proper design, phase one slash two studies like ours, to understand optimal dosing schedule in these biological relevant classes of therapeutics. Spiro, thank you so much for introducing us to your, your vast experience in drug development and, and the interesting pharmacology that's driving CycleCell forward through clinical development. Um, really appreciate having you on. I hope this was useful to your audience and I very much enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Joe Varielli. Thank you for listening.